Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I have been writing this podcast for weeks throughout the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, and I found it impossible to finish, so I decided I'd just put it out there and ask for your help in reaching a conclusion, and I will at the end, so please stay with me. Here goes. Not for the first time since its foundational concepts emerged in philosophical discourse 350 years ago, Enlightenment liberalism is in crisis. As in the 1930s, the democratic societies shaped on Enlightenment ideas are being challenged from within. The cornerstone of Enlightenment thinking is tolerance, tolerance of other people, and, just as important, other people's ideas. The Pledge of Voltaire, or maybe not Voltaire, who cares, to defend the death of a person's right to say something with which he disagrees, and so on. But societies built on tolerance have a flaw, one that can destroy them from within. The flaw was identified by philosopher Karl Popper in his book The Open Society and Its Enemies. He called it the paradox of tolerance. Popper wrote, Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance, even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed, and tolerance with them. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should not always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies, as long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them, if necessary, even by force. For it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. Popper wrote The Open Society and Its Enemies in New Zealand during World War II. For him, this country on the other side of the world was safe haven and exile from the country of his birth. Austria. Popper was born in Vienna in 1902 into a prosperous, assimilated Jewish intellectual household. It's not an exaggeration to say that Vienna in that year was arguably a center of Jewish achievement equal to the New York I was born in half a century later. To be born in fin de siècle Vienna was, for a Jewish person, a stroke of luck. To reach maturity in the 1930s, as that world disintegrated in a matter of years, a trauma beyond the scope of imagining. Popper was very clear-eyed about what was happening. The 35-year-old philosopher managed to secure a university appointment in New Zealand a few months before Austria's Anschluss with Nazi Germany. On hearing news of that dreadful event, Popper immediately began work on the open society and its enemies. From the circumstance and title, you might think the book was a critique of contemporary events, and it is, obliquely. Popper devotes the book to an analysis of Plato's philosophy, along with that of Hegel and Marx. The open society is more an intellectual history of the appeal of totalitarianism. 
The paradox of tolerance is actually a footnote, not even an essential part of the thesis. But it has become for me, as Anglo-America's post-war consensus disintegrates, the critical point of the whole book. Tolerance, toleration, as I said at the start, is the cornerstone of the Enlightenment, the intellectual movement that led Europe out of bloody centuries of religious wars. Toleration is a word with many subtle shades of meaning. Toleration has a golden glow when we talk about accepting someone's right to worship as they please. It implies a nobility of spirit, an open-minded gift of brotherly acceptance. But the term's origin is in the Latin word tolerare, meaning to endure. We speak of a person's ability to tolerate or endure pain. The word migrated into modern use via French, where toleration meant permission granted by the authorities. And the rock from which that cornerstone is hewn is the concept that words and ideas, freely expressed, can be tolerated and not damage the state or the church. After centuries of religious wars, the Enlightenment begins with a simple idea. Let us tolerate, endure other religious opinions and not burn one another for holding them. Religious belief curtailed speech, not just about God, but also about nature and the structures of government. Starting in the late 17th century, philosophers, Spinoza and John Locke primarily, wrote extensively about toleration as a necessity for building a better society. A century later, their thinking inspired the American and French revolutions, as well as scientific ones, all of which were made possible because people tolerated different ideas. Newspapers became a crucial medium for disseminating ideas. No open and tolerant society can function without a free press. The Virginia Bill of Rights, drafted in 1776, even as the Declaration of Independence was being drafted, declares, The freedom of the press is one of the greatest bulwarks of liberty and can never be restrained but by despotic governments. A little more than a decade later, with a successful war of independence behind them, the 13 original American states adopted a constitution whose first amendment guaranteed that Congress would make no law that would abridge the freedom of speech or of the press. The First Amendment is the clearest and most elegant assertion of tolerance. It puts in place a legal obligation on the people who govern to defend to the death a person's right to say something with which it disagrees, which doesn't mean the American government hasn't on occasion tried. Sedition laws have periodically been enacted but allowed to lapse or been overturned. More recently, the federal government has tried to suppress publication of leaked classified material, as in the Pentagon Papers. So far, the courts have ruled in favor of the news organization's right to publish the information. First Amendment rights are sacrosanct to those of us who practice journalism. They guarantee the liberal tolerance that undergirds open democratic societies. But something has changed in American journalism over the last couple of decades, and it has put me in mind of Popper and the paradox of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance, even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed.
Over the centuries, newspapers became institutions in America. At a local level, they were as important to a community as local government. They gave an identity to the towns and cities where they were based. Politicians came and went. Political parties were in and out of power. But the Toledo Blade or the Des Moines Register or smaller Alexander City Outlook in Alabama with a daily circulation of 3,000 were always there. Newspapers also became businesses, some of them phenomenally successful in commercial terms. Most are not. In the last 15 years, more than 2,000 have closed. Around one in five local papers have gone out of business. But the biggest change in the press is the size and popularity of sources of news media that did not exist when the First Amendment was written. 41% of Americans get their news from television, according to recent research from the estimable Pew Foundation. 37% of Americans get theirs from online, although the latter breaks down as 23% from an actual original news website and 14% through social media. The authors of the U.S. Constitution would not recognize the country they founded today, and they would not recognize the press. Both have grown into the enlightened template the founders set up when they wrote the founding charter of the United States. In the late 18th century, the papers were not so much bearers of information as polemical sheets. As newspapers evolved, particularly in the 20th century, they grew towards a very enlightenment ideal, that the news would be gathered objectively and presented impartially. A metaphorical wall was built between news and opinion pages at the Washington Post, where I started out, and at the New York Times, to which I very occasionally contribute. Editorial and opinion writers are on a different floor from the newsroom, lest they infect the objective impartial gathering of facts. The split is most noticeable at the Wall Street Journal, where the news reporting is objective and frequently brilliant, and the common pages are rapidly ideological. But the most critical differences in the news media between the 21st century and the late 18th, when the First Amendment was written, are all fairly recent. Broadcast news in the home is a startling post-war development. Moving images, particularly uncontextualized moving images, are very powerful, a fact recognized by broadcast news organizations. If it bleeds, it leads, is the self-mocking way TV journalists talk about the decision-making that goes into what people see on the nightly news. Then there is the Internet, which incorporates moving images and a ridiculous flood of underreported news that is frequently no more than incorrect rumor, gossip, and intentional fabrications, moving at a speed that defies human ability to comprehend it and sort out truth from falsehood, not so much the free flow of information but a sewer burst of disinformation. And neither television nor online news is primarily about a free press, educating and building an informed citizenry. It is about commercial considerations. TV and online is expensive to produce. These outlets take a fairly base view of humanity and pander to it because that is how to get a large audience and that is where profit lies. If it bleeds, it leads is not about anything other than grabbing an audience and charging advertisers accordingly for access to their eyeballs. The dangers of this were understood by journalists at the very beginning of the television age. 
Edward R. Murrow, our patron saint, said of TV back in 1958, this instrument can teach, it can illuminate, yes, and it can even inspire, but it can do so only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it is nothing but wires and lights in a box. There is a great and perhaps decisive battle to be fought against ignorance, intolerance, and indifference. Murrow's speech was prophetic, and a warning that was ignored. A key part of the modern press's business model is outrage and fear, and the best way to stoke this is by using the news media to preach intolerance. Which brings us back to Popper and the paradox of tolerance. Over the last four years, I have regularly returned to the U.S. to report on what is very clearly an ongoing democratic crisis. Driving through Ohio and western Pennsylvania and Virginia and Georgia and Texas, I forced myself to listen to CBN, Christian Broadcast Network News. Alone in cheap motel rooms, I watch Fox News. These are outlets that were set up to offer a polemical counterweight to the news media that had evolved in the 230 years since the First Amendment guaranteed a free press. But they go far beyond polemic. In style and content, they are models of intolerance. They support a party, the Republican Party, which has become equally intolerant in its actions. One should never use Weimar Germany analogies lightly, but after several years of short, intense exposure to Fox News and CBN, I couldn't help but think of the Volkischer Beobachter, the official newspaper of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Section 118 of the Weimar Constitution guaranteed freedom of the press. There would be no censorship. The Volkischer Beobachter, the People's Observer, took full advantage of that freedom. It was a bankrupt hate rag when Adolf Hitler took over the party and found a wealthy backer to revive it. It was not an unusual publication. In 1920s Germany, most political parties had newspapers, and the Nazis needed one as well. It pushed politics, gossip, and intolerance, mostly of Jews, but also of any political enemy. I wondered if the newspaper had much in common with the way the Trump-supporting networks practiced journalism. Now, I don't read German, and I had to dig around before I found Detlef Muehlberger's two volumes of translations. The Beobachter, in a perverse way, offers a first rough draft of history. Much of what is in Muehlberger's translations belong to the time and place in which they were published, but reading them, I noticed several strong similarities with Fox and CBN and others. First, the relentless demonizing of liberalism, usually described as the source of decay from true German values. Liberals are weak, Germans are strong, and so on. Socialism is similarly dismissed. Admittedly, socialism was a genuine force in Weimar, unlike in America today. The second thing is the tone, mocking, bullying, intolerant. It echoes across the century to what one hears on Fox and Christian Broadcast Network News. However, the deepest correlation between the Volkischer Beobachter and today is in the exaltation of the party leader. This is from a 1930 article by a J. Berchtold. The idea alone is nothing. The leader is everything. Above the idea stands the leader. Ideas do not bear leaders, but a leader bears ideas, and then helps them to break through. When I read that passage, it explained a lot. 
Many reporters and columnists who cover American politics still express amazement at the speed with which Donald Trump has taken over the Republican Party. But as the Beobachter says, the leader is everything and must have the spotlight. Throughout the 20s, Hitler regularly contributed articles to the Beobachter to keep his name and thought in front of the party faithful. Trump frequently appeared on Fox, spouting his worldview, using Fox to build the platform from which to launch his presidential bid. The danger posed by this kind of material being pushed out for several decades as news is self-evident. And it is considered news and disseminated in what is thought of as the press. The Pew Foundation recently surveyed Americans about their sources for journalism, and on the list of choices offered to those being polled were Fox, but also Rush Limbaugh and Breitbart. I wondered how those outlets, clearly not engaged in anything like the objective gathering of facts, were included. American society is utterly split, not by a great moral issue like slavery, but by ideas disseminated by propaganda machines hiding behind the First Amendment's guarantees. Propaganda works. But is it an example of a free press based on the concept of toleration? And by tolerating them as examples of the press, are we extending tolerance too far? Think of the ongoing impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Look at how it is reported on Fox and right-wing talk radio and the so-called Christian broadcast network. Look at the intertwining of their polemics and the behavior of Senate Republicans as the case is laid out forensically by Adam Schiff and the other Democrats who are the House managers in the trial. Then listen again to Popper. It may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument, they may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. It is only the latter clause about fists or pistols that doesn't exactly echo Popper in today's America. But then, when 22,000 people with guns, Trump supporters, all turned up in Richmond, Virginia recently to protest the legislature debating gun regulations, the threat was explicit. Most were wearing combat gear. The authors of America's Constitution thought tolerance and the free flow of information would lead people to reason and truth. This was the natural order of things. Those of us born into a world in which totalitarianism has flourished by exploiting the paradox of tolerance, particularly in the mass media, know differently. And if you're a journalist who has watched how quickly propaganda, masquerading as news or opinion, was able to unravel Yugoslavia and Rwanda, then you begin to question whether a free press is always beneficial to society. And it leaves me smack in the middle of the paradox of tolerance. And here's where I need your help. If I claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant, what happens when the intolerant use the protections of the First Amendment and free speech to advocate for an intolerant, authoritarian, and anti-democratic government? How do I fight that without damaging that precious First Amendment? And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Any suggestions, please contact me via the website, 
www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>